what you end up starting to build then is relationships between all these OKRs, kind of like you would build relationships between teams, right? So one team wants to build something, but they need resources or help or APIs or something else from another team. And so they then build a dependency between those teams. And that's where you may have a shared OKR in certain cases. The thing that's interesting there is that when you see that you need to have this other team's work to get something done in your own team, and they're not willing to take that on, that is a very important conversation to have. Welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast by GTM Hub about aligning strategy execution and promoting outcome-driven cultures through the proven objectives and key results methodology. I'm your host, Jenny Harold, VP of Product Evangelism at GTM Hub. In this episode, we talk about the importance of acknowledging and incorporating randomness in our work, why OKRs are networked and probably shouldn't be tied to the hierarchy, how OKRs are the Trojan horse of strategy, and more. Let's jump in. I am joined by Chris Butler. Super excited to have him on the show. Yeah. Who's Chris? What are you about? Well, thanks for having me here. I'm Chris Butler. I am the global head of product operations for Cognizant, which is a 300,000 person company uh, that's worldwide. Started in the 90s. But my role as head of product operations is really to help steward a community of practice of product managers. And so that's about 100 product managers that are, that are global, India, North America, and EU mostly. And my role is to really kind of PM the PM experience is the way I put it. So product operations is a fairly hot title right now, but it really comes down to that my customer is the product managers within my community. And so it's making and helping them to be as efficient, as good at their jobs, finding as much meaning as they can in the roles that they have. My background though is mostly product management. So the places you would have heard of that I've been at have been places like Microsoft, Waze, Kayak. Um, I left Facebook Reality Labs earlier this year to join Cognizant. I think if you take a look at my career, it kind of feels like it's all over the place whenever I look at it on LinkedIn. (laughs) But I I think the part that's, that's interesting is I'm always looking to help solve some type of pattern or understanding or experience that hasn't been figured out before. So that meant when we were moving from something like desktop software to web or from web to mobile or from mobile to, you know, thinking about artificial intelligence to thinking about communal computing, a bunch of these things end up being kind of these transitionary periods where we're really trying to figure things out. But I think, you know, one of the reasons why we're talking today is, is mostly around OKRs. And so that's something that's been, you know, I've, I've used it a couple different organizations like at Philosophy, which was a kind of boutique design consultancy. We did that. And we use them as a way for goal setting for people. It was about a 60 to 70 person company when I was there. I've also used OKRs at Facebook. And so that's a much larger organization. I would say that what we're trying to do now at Cognizant, when I started in March of this year, about a month later, I was asked to help figure out OKRs for about a group of 15,000 people. And so that definitely is a big order. Uh, I mean, we're still in that process right now, but I think I've been learning an awful lot about this level of scale for OKR application. And then also as part of the practice, you know, we are all trying to be billable to do uh, consulting work within Cognizant. And so I spend some of my time also with our very large organizations that are clients that are trying to do basically transformation from usually some type of older style organization to something that's more product-led. And so a lot of the time that goes along with this product-led or setting up like a product leadership team is this concept of OKRs partially as a way to Trojan horse better kind of strategic thinking into the organization, but also to do things like redistribute power within the organization. And I think that's something that's interesting about OKRs is it 
it helps break up this idea that it's just about people telling other people what to do in a hierarchical organization. It's about how do we get individual teams to really think about what is the best thing they can do for the strategy. I joke about my career as well, that when I look at my LinkedIn, I'm like, it looks like a, where people talk about a ladder. Mine's more like a jungle gym. (laughs) I swung from here to over there and it just worked out. I held on. So it's good. Exactly. Yeah. I think like, you know, the, the seeking of kind of novel situations, and this is something from a book that, that I, I, I talk about a lot. I actually talked about it at uh, Product-Led Alliance's Product-Led Festival the other week when, when we're talking about product mindset and uncertainty. But I think this, like, why greatness cannot be planned is, is a really amazing PM book because it really talks about this idea that we can never really understand what the end goal is. And so this idea of doing this kind of novelty-based search of everything that we could be doing that we're, you know, of course, matched with what you're good at and what you are passionate about. I think ends up getting you way further than this idea that if I was at like, you know, just graduating college and I was like, I'm going to be the VP of product somewhere, that type of thing would have been very different as far as a path. And I probably not as satisfying based on what I, the way I think about my career. I think you gave a talk you had mentioned about using randomness to break out a bias. Yeah. Like to your point, especially now, gosh, who would have guessed that the entire world would get shut down for effectively two years? I don't think anyone would have guessed that. Anybody who probably set strategy, which everyone probably had at some point, once yeah. all that went down and lockdown started to happen, all of that was out of the window, right? Yeah. So it feels quite random in a way <laughs> that all of these things had happened. And we have this, I don't know, maybe like by design, I'm not sure. We want to make orders of things. We want to think that there is no randomness, that there is no room for error, that if we make these plans, then we just need to follow through and then we'll succeed. Can you talk yeah. a bit about this notion of using randomness to break out that bias? Yeah, Yeah, I I think this really came from when I was working at a company called Horizon Ventures, which is based out of Hong Kong. My role was essentially director of product, which was really about all these innovation projects, this like kind of VC and educational philanthropy company was working on. And some of my time was working with portfolio companies, which would be like DeepMind or Effectiva or Quado or these lots of like AI focused companies. But the rest of my time was really thinking about how do we build better education projects, sometimes Mm. for the Chinese market. So it'd be like, how do we do massively online learning for like medical students in China? And and part of the reason why was because Mr. Li Kaixing really thought about right now, if you look at a lot of education systems, not just China, but also the U.S., it tends to favor these people that are very much like the 1% of of education. You want to get into this track to get into like a really established university to then get a great job, et cetera. But if, if you can in some way like help everybody be more educated, maybe we get somewhere better with not only innovation, but just like general kind of work within the world. And so we did a lot of work with this uh, particular university called Shantao University in Guangdong. And what's, what was interesting there is one of the tasks that I was asked to do, I was, I was asked to do a lot of like weird kind of things that didn't really like cohesively pull together. But we're, when you start to look back at it, it's like, it's all about education, which was great was we had to put together a hackathon about kind of how do we give people that are in design, engineering, and other types of kind of schools within Chantau, how do we give them a better working idea of how the real world works when it comes to building something? And so during that time, I had been starting to become more aware of these things called uh, ludidare. And I, I know I always mispronounce it, but it's basically this like game jam where you are given some type of randomized prompt for a game. There's a game mechanic, a setting, and maybe like character. And you have to now spend 48 hours doing this hackathon to create a game around that. And I saw this as like 
very novel way to create a lot of like weird and interesting things, right? And so because we were talking about design and engineering students at the college level, a couple of things that we started to do is we started to one, we decided that we would do some type of randomized prompt that would be a combination of design and engineering skills. We started to think about how do we break people out of their regular team structures as well? So usually if you do like a team project in college, you probably have your friends that you'd rather gravitate towards. So we ended up randomizing the entire team assignment. And what ended up coming out of this is, uh, you know, something that I always thought was really interesting. I was playing around a lot with like Arduino, Raspberry Pi, all these different Mm -hmm. things that were kind of commodity electronics. And I thought what would be really interesting is combining that with my love for kind of dioramas <laughs> when I was a kid. And so what we had them do is we had them build these like dioramas about some type of mythical figure in a particular art style that then had these basically Grove Arduino electronics that had both actuators and sensors. And so we randomly assigned them all these topics. We randomly assigned all these teams. Uh, they had to create something that was a combination of design and, and engineering. And so, and we pushed them over these like 40 hours. There was lots of other things we did during that weekend. But the output was really meant to be this like teamwork between different fields in a place that was kind of uncertain. And what came out of those things were these amazing, like (laughs) all these different things. And we were like 12 of them, which I still have the videos of somewhere. But they were like, you know, one of them was like Steve Jobs playing like ping pong and that the actuator was like, if you when you open the box, it starts like moving the ping pong paddles and stuff. So it was like something that was like really great to see these teams be able to create incredibly creative and innovative things from a very short a period of time through this like random prompting. And so from there, I think the next step for me was really, I, when I was working at Philosophy as Director of Product Strategy and then eventually Director of AI Projects was, how do we introduce more variance into the work that we do? Because yeah. one of the problems with especially like ideation mechanisms is that we bring a lot of the baggage that we, like our, our past beliefs, our intuitions, our experiences, and there's a lot of good reasons for bias, right? Like bias actually helps us make decisions in some ways. But it also kind of overly it's restricts an inhibitor. Exactly. Yeah, it's an inhibitor, right? When, when we're trying to actually, like in the case of like divergence and convergence, we're trying to diverge even more, right? So that right. we can understand and explore the space more. And so during that time, I ended up getting a box of cards by Brian Eno, which is called Oblique Strategies. And it's basically 60 or so different kind of just like prompts. And so one of them is like courage. One of them is like subtract something. Like it's like things that are fairly amorphous and and like things that you have to kind of like parse through your own understanding. And so we started to use this for things like crazy eight sketching for a bunch of different things where I would just like start pulling out random cards to where it would end up being kind of like, what is our prompt, which would usually be some problem statement or how might we, what is our, our all of our past experience? And then this randomization prompt. And so what you get is kind of, there would be a lot of garbage that would come out of it, right? Like just to be clear, ideation is not about everything being perfect. So you right. get a lot of things that were just like, you know, maybe not interesting ideas, but you'd end up getting into this realm where there were way more things that you considered then. And so then that, that ended up leading to this, this, these ideas around just a lot of bias is about the fact that we're pre-framing some type of understanding about the world. Um, and and so, yeah. So, I mean, like this, this comes from um, some really interesting work by two management kind of scientists back in the eighties around something called dominant logic theory, which is essentially you will use the models that made you successful in future decision-making, but the environment may have changed. And so that is where you may go wrong, right? And so anyways, I I think like what we ended up connecting in these types of things, and in in that particular talk you're talking about that was at Interaction 19, was really about this idea that randomization doesn't care about your bias. And that's the good thing about it. And so what it ends up doing is it ends up forcing you to consider more things than you would have otherwise. 
And there are a lot of different types of questioning prompts that I think do that. Like, I think another great question prompt is like, what is a bad idea? Mm-hmm. Because it starts to get you at like, what are the fitness or value functions you're actually combining in your head that could be many, right? And, and it actually makes it really hard in some way to say what is good and what is bad. But you know in your head what feels good or what feels bad. And so there's a lot of really interesting things that start to get out of this, this idea of like, I will always do what I think is perfect and good. And I will think through this and I will be perfect. When the reality is, is like the world is way more messy than that. So if we can start to think more through the space of both problem and solution, we will probably come up with better ideas. Yeah, I think we we had discussed earlier, I had experience at Wonderlist, a small startup that mm. created a to-do list app. I think we discussed it. And yeah, that's right. We were thinking through at the very end when you accomplish, let's say, a whole list. We thought, wow, wouldn't that be a great moment for celebration? And a few of the designers and the PMs on the team thought, why don't we do something fun like confetti or, you know, this seems logical that when you finish your entire task list, you're going to feel good about it. And I remember one of our engineers, I'll never forget, Ben looks over because he overheard our conversation. He's like, but what if somebody created a list that was all of the things they needed to do to plan a funeral? And all of us just stopped and stared at him. And we had never considered, because we only considered people were using this for productivity, it never occurred to us that people would use this product for things that they need to get done, but may not be pleasant to talk about, right? right. Such as someone working through their grief and the mechanics of parting ways with someone in the form of a funeral or whatever services they would do at any end of life. And I thought, wow. And this kind of gets us back to this communal computing conversation where I think you'd mentioned once you were working through these video calling home assistants. And we have them now. Like we have this, these little home pods in our home. We have Alexas that we're talking to. We've got Echo, all of these things. And something that never occurred to me is, Jenny, how crazy would it be if I was sitting at my dinner table, I had friends over and Alexa is like citing off my bank statement. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I, just, I couldn't help but laugh. Can you, can you talk through a little bit about yeah. that kind of mindset? Because something that you had mentioned to me before is yeah. in your company and the range of roles you've had, you yeah. are the holder of the product mindset, right? <laughs> and I think that ties into this in some way. I don't yeah. think that any singular person, honestly, should be that. <laughs> but I think there always will be a champion or a steward of it, to be sure. And it sounds like that's who yeah. you are and have been in the roles that you've played. But let's kind of navigate this conversation as we're thinking through product, the product mindset, and thinking through the edges of things we just wouldn't expect people to do with yeah. the products and services that we sell. We just don't think through them. I've referred to this in the past like collection of kind of methodologies, techniques, and processes, and then just like mindsets is really like the adversarial mindset. And I think this is related in a lot of ways to the, the product mindset, because I, I think the product mindset, to me at least, is not just about this idea of like, how do we harness best practice around product management, right? Like it's not, it's not, I want to be a great product manager. It's that you're really trying to build something that lasts for longer than just mm-hmm. this release or just to get something done, right? Like it's not a project-based mentality. It's about how do we now build something that is going to exist for a very long time? And so that to me is really about embracing the uncertainty of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think there are different levels if we think about where do we need to be adversarial to our own selves, right? And to our teams and to our companies, right? And the way we do a lot of that is by 
you know, one, we can question ourselves. And that's, it's hard to do that because actually when we talk about bias, right, there's something called blind spot bias, which is that you don't even know your own biases. <laughs> and so it, it, it's a kind of a catch 22 in that case, right? The next level is that the reason why we build teams with lots of different diverse viewpoints is because of the fact that we will not always know everything about the world individually. And so we want to build a team. And of course, things start to break down once a team gets to a certain size, right? Like if sure. you talk about the Amazon two pizza team or whatever, there is a certain kind of like dynamic that starts to get harder and harder to do when you get into very large organizations. But you want to try to build teams that are actually, that's why you like in the concept of kind of balanced teams is this idea of a product manager, a designer, engineer. I think you could also start to include like data scientists, user researchers, like all these different people, you start to build into a cohesive team that are all helping provide different viewpoints. And then individually bringing in different experiences, I think is really, really important there. That's why you then go and talk to customers after that is because you could still fall into groupthink biases because you end up working together a lot. You're part of the same corporate culture. Like there's all these things that end up kind of like corralling you into similar mindsets, even if you're very different as individuals. And then talking to people gets you out of that. That's why you do user research. That's why you do experimentation, hypothesis-driven development. And then the last kind of stage of trying to break out of all this stuff is just randomness of the universe. And I, I just want to pause for a second. I know there are going to be some people that are out there that are very much like into causation and that there is no such thing as randomness, but we are humans, right? We can't understand everything that exists in the world. We can't understand every, like, that's why like five whys to me are, it's kind of like a love-hate relationship with five whys. I use five whys as a way to get people to ask more questions. But the truth is, is that just getting to five whys doesn't mean that once you found that fifth reason why something happened, you're you set. Could have it. Yeah. And, right. and that you could have actually made a change at that moment to not have that chain of events happen. Because we're talking about that was your mentality and understanding the world at the time. And especially when we talk about like weird causation effects, right? It does look random to us. It's just that when we look back in hindsight, it looks like it's a very straight level, like set of events. That's why this, this concept of uncertainty and how do we start to challenge ourselves and our teams, I think, ends up becoming so important with this. And, and maybe just touching on communal computing, right? The assumptions that went into what I'll call communal computing are really, any, like you said, anything that exists in the home that multiple people should be using at the same time, right? Or, or like over the course of a day, different people will use it. And that could be me, my spouse. That could be my kids. That could be guests, right? Dinner guests. You could even include someone like a burglar in that like range of people like that. That could be someone you don't trust them. You don't want them to be there, but they could be there uh, using your devices. Right. And so I think the thing that started for all this communal computing was that really in a research and academic setting in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, when people had to start doing time sharing and client server architecture computing, they had to know who was logged in because they had to be able to shut down processes or someone had access from this time to this time on the mainframe to use the resources. And that type of like kind of single user context ended up transferring into personal computers. There was a root login, there were users. I don't think it was until like Windows like 95 or something like that, that there was really like a Windows equivalent of a user. And the way that we started to think about like, how do we fix this is actually through account switching. So that personal mm. computer that's sitting in your living room you know, I'm going to switch from my account to my kid's account or something like that. No one ever does that, by the way. Everybody uses one account. And then when we, we start to install all these things like Echoes and more, uh, sorry, we, we skipped a step. Um, when we actually started, the next step there ends up being personal kind of mobile phones, right? And once these smartphones mm -hmm. become way more functional, we start to forget about this idea of shared computing in the home, which was, which was kind of weird in the way it was set up. But then we reintroduced generalized computing through things like the Amazon Echo, right? But it's still based on this single user context, right? I set it up with my Amazon account. 
My Amazon kind of shopping list is attached to it. My Spotify playlist is attached to it. And so what we didn't consider here was that just because someone is buying something and setting it up, it's, it's actually not everybody that's using it, right? Like I, I have the problem where my Spotify playlist and my made for Chris Butler is not actually made for me because like two out of the six different playlists are actually like kid focused song playlists. And that's because my kids are constantly playing stuff on the Google Home Hub that's in our kitchen. And that's not bad, right? That's how this is meant to be used. It's just that because of that single account context, and because of our kind of certainty around the world that that will be enough, it means we've been building things wrong. And I think there's a lot of stuff around inertia here too, right? Like the inertia sure. of just like the way things have been built for the longest time. But I think that gets us back to this, how do we do a better job of being product managers is that we need to embrace this uncertainty and we need to actually like dance with it or be good with uncertainty. That's our role is to really be this like, not filter necessarily, but there are other roles that we work with where they do not deal as well with uncertainty, right? Like an engineer needs to ship a line of code, a designer needs to place a button or, or an experience, right? A salesperson needs to get a, a signed contract. Those are all things that are incredibly certain, right? There's a closure point where that is now a part of history. Whereas with like uncertainty, it could go a lot of different ways. And so I don't know, it, I think I've kind of gone over the map here, but I, again, I think there's a lot of these kind of like concepts coming together with product management and product mindset that I think if we do a better job of being with uncertainty, we do a better job of just being product managers and, and building things for people that actually matter to them and, and, and help them. I think then, again, the phrase that you had mentioned when we had met previously was, Jenny, we need to consider that we might be drawing the system boundary wrong. That summarizes, I think, what where you were going. If I, It's basically your words again. This idea yeah. that we had a notion of what the world was, and there's perfectly good rationale for why it had to be the way it was. But the world, as it will always do, has changed and has evolved. And now we have these yeah. devices in our homes that we don't log into. Yeah. Like, I'm not logging into my HomePod as much as you're you know, doing your Google Home Hub or Alexa or whatever. Like we're yeah. not logging into these devices, yet they're connected to the network yeah. in the same way it always has been. So that kind of makes sense. And so then I think in the same way, and this transitions really nicely, this this yeah. drawing the system boundary wrong. You had written something recently, and that's how I, I came to know you, is you read uh, you wrote an article on Medium that was about OKRs being networked. Yeah. I really appreciated that because <laughs> I think when I thought about that idea, this notion that we're drawing the system boundary wrong, it makes sense that we have a hierarchy within business, right? Yeah. The reason why we have that is because then it makes sense how the roles are established, what domain expertise you're going to develop, how you advance your career. But we know very well, similarly, that that's not how work gets done. To, the, to yeah. your point earlier, when we're talking about shipping good products, and getting diverse perspectives, the work's being done across all of those various disciplines. And none of those disciplines, I would imagine, have necessarily more authority than the other. They all play a part in the delivery. So you talk about a little bit, like what inspired you to write this piece? And can you explain a bit about what this means? Like OKRs are networked. I've always been someone that is, I guess, disliked the way that hierarchies work, right? Like hierarchies tend to over refine or close down the number of options because it ends up being like, what is the person the tops idea? And then mm -hmm. how is it the rest of the organization enables that, right? And I think that inherently limits the options in some way. Now, when I'm doing a lot of the coaching or consulting that we do, 
where I'm trying to help people actually become like create great product organizations, especially around OKRs, there ends up being this concern about, well, you know, we have X hundreds of people in this organization, or in my case, like 15,000 people in this organization that we need to now in some way provide goal setting for that is valuable to them. But what you start to see when you look at it from a hierarchy is that you you ignore the fact that there are teams or, or kind of pods of people that are potentially cross-functional, right? Not always, but but usually cross-functional. And what they're doing is they're starting to look at that if they if they have to fit into a hierarchy, there's all these kind of dysfunctions from hierarchies that start to come up, which is one mm-hmm. that we're passing down things from the top to the bottom, or that we need to now comprehensively include everything from the bottom up to the top. And if like you've ever done OKRs before, ideally you're talking about very few OKRs that an individual person has to worry about. And if you end up using a hierarchy, you almost create this circumstance where the person at the top has to worry about every individual's OKR at the bottom, like in the bottom of the hierarchy. And vice versa, the person at the bottom has to think about the OKRs that are every step all the way up to the top of that hierarchy. And so rather than this idea of like two or three OKRs, right, which which could be very valuable for you, not, and, and I want to be very clear here too, I don't mean that every individual should have an OKR. I mean, for like your team, right, the, the group that you're working with most of the time should have one set of OKRs that are two to three. If you now have to worry as a team, like how do we fit into a hundred OKRs, right? It becomes insurmountable. It's a non-starter. You can't start with that, right? It's just, you would spend all your time planning and defining (laughs) and not actually doing anything about it. You're having to memorize, like that's the whole point of OKRs is that they're supposed to be in the back of your head while you're doing making decisions, right? And so you suddenly have to think about these hundred things. To your point, you're going to spend all your time planning, but then you're also going to find that there's actually a lot of kind of contradictions, right? Mm. Because organizations are full of contradictions and that's okay. That's actually what creates a complex system is is contradictions between kind of the things within the complex system. And that's why complex systems do things that are not like deterministic or procedural a lot of the time is because of this fact that there's like agents, humans, right? That are doing something that's interesting for kind of self-interest and that could be self-interest to their group. But in some way, like as an organization, as a leader in an organization, you're trying to get all of these groups to go kind of in the same direction, right? It doesn't have to be the exact same direction because you want some variability. But that's where I think OKRs come in is that it's meant, it's kind of this like agreement between leader and team that like, I will give you feedback about what I think is really high priority right now. And I want you to tell me, like, what can you do about this, right? And that's that's what the, the agreement is in OKRs. And so, so he's getting back to like networking versus hierarchies is that I think you really will start to suffer from all of these traditional problems that come up with hierarchies, if you end up like using OKRs for them. And, and this is because OKRs really are a Trojan horse for strategy, right? Can and- you define that a bit more? Like, I think hopefully some people have known that story. If they don't, yeah. perhaps we'll <laughs> unpack that. I, yeah, basically Trojan horse comes from a ancient story about the fact that the Greeks were trying to conquer this city, like this Trojan city. And uh, they tried to get in, but they were the Trojans were really dug in very, very well. And so they ended up leaving, using basically like a feint of that they were going to leave the area. And they left this horse as kind of a gift with one soldier to explain it. And that one soldier explained to uh, the people that were in that city that like, hey, you know, we're sorry for trying to do this. You beat us fair and square. Here's a gift from us. And what ended up happening was that when they brought the Trojan horse inside, it was this humongous thing. They didn't check inside, unfortunately. But what was inside was basically, I think it was... It was like a platoon equivalent of like Greek soldiers, right? And so at night, they then use that advantage to take over the city. And so what I mean by like 
OKRs are really a Trojan horse for strategy is that I think when you try to write good OKRs, you really have to have a good understanding of strategy, especially if you don't just kind of like hand wave your OKRs, right? Like if you keep it to a small number of things, if these objectives that you're writing have to actually be real objectives about a person has to be at like some end state, when you're writing the key KRs or the key results, like these actually have to be kind of progress towards an objective. The objective has to be clear. It has to be aspirational. Like there's all these things that are tied up in the way that is like you do best practice around OKRs that really, if you look at the equivalent for kind of a strategic document or, you know, I've done a lot of strategic planning and, and, and also just like consulting, helping people figure out their strategies. A lot of the same rules apply and a lot of the same kind of best practices apply between those, except OKRs are this kind of shiny methodology that seems to be super successful because of big companies taking it on, right? And so it ends up entering into this conversation that like, well, this person wants to now have, there's eight things that my team is dealing with, so I have to have eight OKRs. The point there is that no, you don't. What you should be working on, right, is you should have ideally most of your team covered by the OKRs, right? Most of your team should be working towards these things. But the reality is, is that there's going to be things that are business as usual that you just have to get done that are going to be just things that the team will do. And that's a big difference between this idea of like, now, what is our like big driving force? Where are we going? What is our objective for this thing? And that's also a difference when we talk about like key results versus KPIs, right? Is KPIs are a list of all the things we could care about that if suddenly one of those things changed, we should go off and find out why, right? Like, why did this suddenly get really big or why did this get like totally drop off? But KRs again are like, how do we get feedback that we're actually doing something in our team right now that moves towards whatever our team's kind of strategy is. And the reason why I start to think about it as networks is that every individual team within an organization, like I said, are all trying to go kind of in the same direction. But the reality is, is that each team has to do different things. And so that means that their OKR should be specific to their team in some way. And, and then when we talk about the idea of like overall OKRs for an organization, that is actually the leadership team's organization's OKRs, right? And so what you end up starting to build then is relationships between all these OKRs, kind of like you would build relationships between teams, right? So one team wants to build something, but they need resources or help or APIs or something else from another team. And so they then build a dependency between those teams. And that's where you may have a shared OKR in certain cases. The thing that's interesting there is that when you see that you need to have this other team's work to get something done in your own team, and they're not willing to take that on, that is a very important conversation to have, right? And that is where then when you talk about the network, from the standpoint of maybe it's it's less of a hierarchy, but it's more kind of a like a hub and spoke model or a network that radiates out from the center OKR, right, which is the organization's OKR. You end up then working through this with people that are leadership that says their OKRs will help tell them how to resolve with those two other teams, the resourcing constraint issue. So it ends up being like, who has to make a decision and how should they get feedback from the strategy to be able to make this decision? And so that's why Networks, I think, work way better for this because it's about like, what are the decisions I have to make? How is that informed by the OKRs I have? Which is really my strategy, right? It's a linkage to the strategy in some way. And so I, I think we get into trouble though when we start to think about things that everything has to go all the way to the top of the hierarchy and then everything has to come all the way back down. We talk about it in the military sense, it's this idea of commander's intent. You want to be able to tell people what is the real objective there. You don't want to have to tell them exactly how to do it because ideally we're hiring, you know, we should all assume that we're hiring people that are smart and motivated, and we should give them tools so that they can be as smart and motivated around the thing they're doing. Being in hierarchies rarely does that, at least like well, very strict hierarchies. Beyond that, right, if we're talking about the military analogy of the commander's intent, and we were to just keep going with this, yeah. the folks that are quote unquote on the front line 
are going to have to make decisions on a day-to-day basis to make progress. If they come up with some sort of, I don't know, like adversary or something that obstructs them from making progress, do we expect our teams just to sit there and wait for the commander to come and tell them what exactly they need to do to resolve their problem? That's right. We would look at each other and say, that's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Well, then the question becomes, well, how are they going to be able to make those kinds of trade-offs or decisions if they have no framework to understand what the overall business is trying okay. to achieve, firstly? And then secondly, on a local level, what responsibilities that they have in delivery to the end customer, which arguably when people talk about business outcomes or customer outcomes, I'm like, you all are just playing semantics because to me, that's the same thing. Like if you are able to serve the customer, your bottom line is going to be served. And if you focus everyone then on this obsession that everyone keeps talking around the customer, then inevitably the business will be able to to make, you know, to grow. And that's what we want to see. You know, I, I wanted to like just riff on what you were saying about the person at the front line. Like, you know, Clausewitz would talk about this as fog and friction. Right? Yeah. And I think there's something really interesting about that when we talk about when we talk about fog in the case of kind of building modern product management or or building mm. building modern products is that the fog is actually that the commander or the person who's the CEO or the visionary within the organization they will actually have very little understanding about the mental models or the experience or the things that take place at the very edge of the teams that are actually interacting directly with customers. And so that is where like, if they cannot make the best decisions based on the experiences that they're gathering, they end up being stifled. And so Mm -hmm. that idea of like fog, I've used this also whenever I'm talking about product mindset is going back to that book, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, right? Their kind of analogy is this idea of you're trying to get from one side of a lake to another and there's stepping stones to do that. But the problem is, is that you can't actually see all the stepping stones, right? There's like fog. <laughs> and so what you need to do is you need to explore the space to be able to understand like where you can go to get to the other side. Because it, again, that uncertainty and randomness, right? Yeah, that's right. There's not like a direct path from one thing to another. So like the idea of going from a vacuum tube to a computer, that was not a straight path. And that was not a known path in any way, right? That And that's, that's something that they looked into, which I think is, I think really valuable because... There's no way that a single person can always know exactly what's going to happen and then tell the rest of their organization how to do their work exactly. It's just, it's impossible. And so the people that have been very strong leaders that usually have worked within hierarchies, they've also been very lucky. (laughs) Mm. And there's, there's, there's another bias here, which is called survivorship bias. So there's been plenty of people (laughs) that have, that have done very hierarchical systems that have also failed. Really a lot of the technology that we're, we've got is really about finding efficiencies in operations and delivery. But our end state is we want the business to grow and our customer to be happy. Where is that missing piece? I would suggest you need some kind of framework. I I think OKRs is the best so far that we've evolved to, but that's kind of where I'm thinking. And, And when I read your piece, I was like, yeah, this is why this makes sense to me. It's because we have all of the other pieces and we've gone to the point of now, I think, being able to take what was production line work and just translating yeah. that in all of the tooling that we have now to monitor yeah. engineering and product delivery. Now we know, you know, these are our story points and here's our velocity. And we're able to like say, here's our whip. And great, we've yeah. measured all of the same kinds of stuff just in the new world in the same way you've discussed earlier, Jenny. It used to be yeah. single user mainframe, you knew. We haven't then evolved the management yeah. of our teams to kind of adapt to this more accelerated, unknown, unknowns kind of world. 
And we need to be able to do that. That's right. Yeah. And I I think what you bring up around the way that kind of manufacturing mindsets have really been brought to bear here. For a lot of the time, when we were building something like a car, if something wasn't working, you would just replace it as far as the machine or the robot or whatever. I think this is why when you see a lot of discourse or discussion around how, how do you become like a good product founder, one of the things is that you need to like hire and fire fast. And mm-hmm. I think that's overly restrictive because what we're thinking about is we're thinking about, oh, well, you know what? We can't change the strategy. We can't change the processes that we use. So we, it, the problem must be these cogs in the machine that are people. We just need to swap in and out, right? Mm-hmm. When the reality is, is like real agile thinking, one of the last lessons I tend to give in, in these discussions around product leadership or agile leadership is that the last step is, okay, how do you run a retro? Because you're now going to change your process. And how do you iterate on your strategy? Because we've gone through all this stuff where it's like, how do we get people to think differently? How do we get people to work in groups together differently? But if we can't now go back and say that actually this particular process that we had was bad, mm-hmm. right? Like it didn't help us. It didn't give us efficiency. I think like efficiency, actually, there's like something to talk about as far as the tension between inefficiency and growth versus right. efficiency as well. I think there's something really valuable to talk about that, but let's put a pin in that for a second. I think the biggest problem is that when it comes to things like strategy is that we assume we can't change it. Right. But it should says. adapt. It, that's <laughs> it the <should>. point. <laughs> that's right. right. And that's why like, you know, you look at, you look at things like going back to the Trojan example, like, yeah, the Greeks didn't destroy the city. Actually, in the end, it was probably better. They didn't destroy the city, What they did ended up being a acceptable kind of outcome for that particular thing. When we talk about how we figure out what is the right thing for our customers it may not always end up being just shipping this particular product, right? It might be a mm-hmm. part of the product. It might be a different product. It might be a service. And so that, that's why I think the biggest problem that, that maybe lean and manufacturing and Toyota production system, there's a lot of good things that have come from that. Totally. But it's, but it's not that like we're designing the manufacturing line for six months to a year, and then we're just like stamping out products, right? What we're actually doing when we're building software is we're constantly redesigning this kind of way that we're doing things, right? The, the production line is changing as we are shipping. Exactly. That's insane to think about. We joke about this, like we're yeah. building the plane as we're flying the That's plane. Right. That's what's happening, ex- exactly. except you're also changing the tooling. That's right. <laughs> well, the, and, plane, and the, only thing, you know? the only thing that's manufacturing or stamping out something is the web server that is sitting on a rack somewhere that is constantly right trimming web page or okay. serving an app or whatever. That's the only part of that that is manufacturing. Everything else is like constantly in flux in mm-hmm. some way. And so I think that is the limiting assumption that ends up happening with a lot of agile teams or people that want to be agile is that the only thing we need to do is change our process once and we need to bring in the right people that have the right mindsets and then we will just achieve this. When the reality is, is like there needs to be these loops around change, not just at the team level, but also at the leadership level. And that means, do we have the right strategy? Do we have the right OKRs? That's why OKRs are meant to be, in my opinion, quarterly. Is because mm-hmm. it is the level of kind of, can you make enough change in something? And then understand whether you had the positive or negative impact because you're basically experimenting, right? Talking about uncertainty again, an OKR is still uncertain, right? Even though it may have been workshopped and everybody approved it and it networked in and through dependencies to all the other OKRs, it is still uncertain. You don't know all the time, whether those KRs will lead to progress towards that objective. And so that is the part that I think everybody forgets is that if you can't also change the process, if you can't also change OKRs, if you can't also change strategy, now, ideally, you're not doing that every week. But if you can't do those things, 
you will never actually be a true agile organization. And again, I, I think, you know, we get caught up in this idea of like, cert- what's, what's certified agile, what's real agile, right? The true right. Scotsman fallacy type of thing. But it's more about like, how do we build teams that are actually more resilient, right? That I, are, I think that's it. That's yeah. it. And so I think it's we, we use this terminology too much to, yeah. to mean one thing when what we really mean is we want teams to be resilient. We want them to be successful. We want to build things that actually help Matter. move the world forward. Help, yeah. Help people help do things that are better. Right. And uh, if we, if we don't allow ourselves to actually over time, change the processes that do that, I, I don't think that we're allowing us to actually come to full fruition around re- resiliency when it comes to I th- that. I think that makes a lot of sense. That speaks to what I, I think as well. It's, it is a mindset shift. And can you imagine then an organization where there is this, we talk about this a lot, this psychological safety to yeah. fail. We talk about fail fast so that we can, you know, all yeah. of that stuff. But then for whatever reason, when push comes to shove, we look at the end state every quarter and people weren't, you know, perhaps posting the numbers that we had hoped to see. Mm-hmm. What happens then? And then the what happens yeah. then question, whatever the result of that is, I think, speaks a lot to whether or not that organization will be ex- successful in its deployment and execution of strategy, really, yeah. is what happens when people make it or don't at the end of the quarter. And so I think those kinds of ceremonies and the reflection points that happen are just as important as all of the rigor that we put in up front. Yeah. No, I, I 100% agree. That's that's why, actually, the first thing I tell people to start with a lot of the time is is, like, if we're talking about the idea of agile ceremonies or whatever, right? Like it, it's a whole amorphous thing nowadays, right? So I always feel like concerned that people are seeing say, seeing me say agile with like a capital A rather than right. a small A. Um, yep, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the first thing I always say is, is if you really want to make change inside of this team, right? You want this, you feel like there's a problem that the team is not addressing. Mm-hmm. The first thing you should do is start doing retros. Like everything else can come after that. But the moment you start to build this cycle about change within the organization, I think that's when you get a benefit. And that's why, like, actually, for OKRs, right, the first cycle that you do OKRs, you should spend, like, a little bit of time kind of having people struggle with OKRs because I wrote a couple other articles about writing great objectives, writing great uh, key results that kind of take you, you know, again, there's this almost like this known path you have to travel first (laughs) to get from this idea of, like, I'm just jamming initiatives into my objectives and key results to this point that you have great objectives, you have great key results, it's a little bit of a journey. So there needs to be some struggle there. But there's a certain point that you need to just like stop it and say that that like perfection is the enemy of progress here. And that we're going to move forward with some set of OKRs. Honestly, I, I kind of cap it with like the people that I end up coaching. It's like one or two rounds of coaching. And then I'm like, we're just going to stop and we're going to move forward, right? We're not going to talk about this anymore. We're not going to, we're just going to put them into OKRs. And now let's talk about what do we do with the mid-cycle check-in? How do you make this part of your maybe weekly or sprint level cycles what do we do when we're going to do grading and then I, and a retro at the end? Because the great, again, the grading should take like a minute, right? It should just be something where you like pull up the spreadsheet and it's like all the numbers are there. You're like, great. Here's the, here's what we got as far as grade. What's more important is now saying, why did we meet this? Or why didn't we meet this? Should we have like exceeded this even more? Should we have made this a harder KR, right? Should we have made these different KRs? Like, why are we not seeing progress? Those are all really, really important questions to ask that create this feedback loop that OKRs are trying to get you thinking about, like, how do I connect my work with strategy? And so that, that's where I think, like, it's, it's really powerful when you have something like an OKR methodology. Again, you can use lots of different types of goal-setting methodologies for this type of thing. Something that I learned when I was working at a company called IPsoft, which 
you know, and, and this, there was inklings of this at Philosophy, which is a design consultancy. But IPsoft basically shipped conversational agents to groups that were usually like customer support organizations, where actually longer term they wanted to reduce costs, so they would try to implement these these conversational agents for both phone and text and whatever. And we were called into one group that was basically like an insurance uh, carrier, and they wanted to provide a tool, a conversational agent for the contact center agents themselves, where the question that came in was like, why did my insurance uh, bill go up last month? And to answer this question as a agent in this this environment, by the way, and I spent a lot of time in that environment, just like listening to their calls, sitting at their desks, they had to go somewhere in the range of three to five different software tools. And they what? had to think, yeah, they had to think, they had to, they had to build all this cognitive load around like, I have to remember all these different things. I have to look up all these different things because wow. the information about why did this bill go out at this, this amount was... A, a multivariate, a apparently, problem. <laughs> yeah, you had to like they, they had to write down notes sometimes, right? Like it was it was really complicated. And what we wow. were brought in to do was basically to build a conversational agent where this agent could press a button and it would come back with a list of reasons why that cost was higher. Now, wow. did it need to be a conversational agent? Absolutely not. It did not need to be a conversational agent, right? But what was beneficial to the organization was that. This idea, again, of a Trojan horse, maybe I'm using this analogy too much, but but like the idea of using something like a conversational agent, which is a shiny, innovative, kind of hot tool at the time to bring in, that actually allowed us to now create gateways to these three or four or five systems to pull together one answer, when the reality is they could have just written a web tool to do that as well, right? right. They could have altered one of their other tools to just pull in this information in a view that made sense, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is why... I kind of like love the idea of OKRs. I kind of hate the idea of OKRs in the sense that OKRs are this thing that is an idea about what people want for their organizations. I think this is where SAFE comes in too. Like SAFE is this idea that people have about what they want for their organizations. There are, of course, downfalls for any of these things, right? Like certain types of OKR cultures end up being all about like humongous spreadsheets and a thousand OKRs and things like that, right? Like they can be misused a lot of the time. But I think we have to kind of, you know, from a realistic standpoint, we have to use symbols and ideas sometimes to help get change to happen in other ways. And so that's why I think like I use OKRs as kind of the symbol for this. But if you look at a lot of my previous writing from like years ago, it was all about strategy, right? It was about mm-hmm. like, how do we lower the cost of building strategies? And and in this post I did around like your strategy is too sacred, right? And this idea of a proto-strategy where we don't want to call it a strategy because then all of these people get involved that have to like polish it and make sure the wording is exactly right. When the reality is, is all your strategy is, is you're just there. You're supposed to be sitting in a meeting and someone says, well, should we do this or that? And you say, well, I think that based on what we're supposed to be doing, we, we should always be prioritizing X. Which of these does a better job at that? And you just had a conversation about strategy trade-offs. And so I think this is this is like a really important thing that there's all this baggage that ends up getting tied up both for good and for bad around things. And so when it comes to OKRs, I think there's a good idea that's there. How it's implemented becomes incredibly important. And that's why I think writing that whole post around OKRs or networks, not hierarchies, ended up coming out was because I kept on seeing people struggling with this, where they're trying to do it in a way that has matched their old ways of thinking about the world, which is purely hierarchical, rather than this idea of like agile pods that are working together in a portfolio. And those are very different kind of work modes. And if you try to bring over OKRs from a hierarchical sense for that team, it's not going to work out. And it's definitely not going to work out. It's not going to work out. And you'll get really frustrated with it. And you'll say the methodology sucks. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think we have a bit of time for some quick fire questions to just round everything out. This has been a really helpful conversation. So first question is, 
What is your dream with the deadline? For me, deadlines are something that's always in the future. And I want to keep them there because I think that this idea of closing down something, I, I guess my, my dream for the deadline is that it's always something that's continuously out in the future that's helping drive us. Because there, there is value to time boxing. There is value to introducing constraints, right? And so the concept of the deadline is, is I think, a helpful constraint for a lot of teams. And so I think that's something that, that is really valuable to me, at least, is how do we provide better constraints to teams so that they can be as creative as possible? And I, I know that seems kind of counterintuitive, but I definitely, my, my dad was a graphic designer, art director. And so he always had these like 500 pen sets that were these amazing things with like all different types of like tips and everything. And because he would, he would have to sketch a lot of stuff to, to do his design. And I got one of these, I think it was only like 20 or 30 pens, but I had no idea what to do with it. And the reason why is because I didn't put like constraints on me about like, what is the goal of this? Right. And I actually ask myself this about writing all the time is like, what is my goal with this? And I think without that type of framing, we end up flailing around a lot. And so deadlines to me are a way to kind of introduce things. And I, I, there's a really great book by Von Tan um, called The Uncertainty Mindset that I've really kind of been starting to think about a lot. I think, I think it's a really great book. It's, it's focused on restaurants, like super high-end dining restaurants, R&D. And I've never worked in high, high-end restaurants. I've worked in restaurants a lot. My mom was a restaurateur. I ended up working in a restaurant tech company for a little bit that I founded. But this idea of kind of like the scramble within that realm of the restaurant world, like how do you finish a service strong in the case of Von Tan's work around R&D was like, how do you manufacture in some ways these types of kind of not constraints, but but kind of moments that need you to actually rise to the occasion, mm-hmm. right? And so I think deadlines are one of those constraints that are really interesting. They can absolutely be abused. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And let's be honest, most of them, if not all of them are arbitrary, but it is helpful. <laughs> and they are. I mean, we made yeah. them up, right? Yeah. The, the only deadline that we probably can't handle right now is when the sun engulfs the earth when it becomes super large, right? Like that's a deadline we we can probably not change right now. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. But everything else is kind of like hand-wavy at that point, right? Kind of, I think so. (laughs) So, I mean, you have a massive responsibility. 15,000 people are a lot. What do you appreciate most about your team and the folks that you get to work with? People are really passionate about the company culture, right? So Cognizant has been around for a long time. Like there's a lot of leaders that have been there for 15 or 20 years that I work with. And so I think the embodiment of the spirit of the organization, the cultural appreciation for that, I think is, is really great. And I think there's a lot of people that want to make really big change. And they see the way to do that as through basically supporting all of these companies that are out there. So Cognizant probably works with every Fortune 100, if not Fortune 500 company. And so I think this idea of, of kind of mass scale, really helping large organizations do something better. And because our practice at product management is still kind of budding and, and nascent, right? We're building it up as we go. I think trying to help not only Cognizant make this transition from project to product, and there's people that are like chomping at the bit for this, right? Like they really, really want that change. And we want that change also for our clients. And so I think that's the thing that is really great is, is seeing this kind of desire for that, like, yes, we know delivery and execution. That's something that this company is known for. But how do we continue to grow so that we do things even better? is what I, I'm constantly impressed with. Like I do product mindset workshops all the time for a lot of different organizations or, or communities within our group. And there's always like, I love that you're trying to put things this way and I want to help. Like, how can I help you motivate the rest of the team to do this, right? So I think that's the thing is like this, this, this kind of like want for or desire for, for growth and improvement 
is, is really, really great. Like everybody is, is super impressive with, within the organization for that. And final question is what's next for you? Like what's next for you in terms of what you want to write, what you want to do, like what's top of mind for you? Top of mind so far has been, I've been working a lot on this communal computing thing just because I think it's, it's a really important kind of mindset shift to the way that we build things in general. We were so obsessed for so long with this idea of like personal computing, but there's, there's a, a, a academic and, and someone that does a lot of kind of sociology research, uh, Dr. Sally Eplin, which talks about his design individualism. And this is like a concept that there's going to be one device or system and one person. And I think what that gets us into is this, this assumption that we, we know what's best for this one person. And that then gets applied to everybody else. And I think this is related maybe to my longer term thesis, which is really that people's certainty about the world, people's certainty about other people, about what is the right thing, what is best, that certainty, I think, gets us into a lot of trouble. And I think probably causes the worst parts of this world. I think when we talk about certainty, I could say that that is also related to things like racism, like the idea that you know exactly who someone is based on some characteristic about them, I think overly constrains the entire world. And so for me, I guess, how do I, through the work that I do, allow for more uncertainty, right? Allow for me to be more curious about people than judgmental about people. And I, by the way, I am a very judgmental person. Like I, I, I definitely have opinions about the way things should happen, right? But trying to back off of that and just be like, well, why is this person being this way? Like that, that is the question we should be asking. What is the context, right? I've seen someone say this online where it was like, what's going on with this human right now, right? Like, like <laughs> You don't ever get to this endpoint that is actually learning something new about someone or learning about how you can work someone better or like just what is going on. That is the question we should be asking, not I believe this or I, you are this, right? Those are, that's where I think almost everything bad in this world comes from. And so that's probably my ongoing thesis is how do we, how do we do a better job of teaching people to dance with the uncertainty of the world rather than making assumptions about it that are wrong? Wow. I'm going to be munching on that for, for a bit now, too. Thanks so much. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And of course, you know, I'm always happy for people to reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and definitely would love to hear what people's thoughts are. And not only the articles around OKRs, it's been something that I've been trying to, like, I guess, just move the discourse forward with OKRs. But in general, like, I'm always really, really excited to talk to people about the way that they leverage uncertainty in the world. So I'd love to connect with everybody out there. So thank you for the opportunity to be here. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com slash radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.